Welcome to the Grace Community Church Podcast. We are grace for everyone, community for everyone, church for everyone. We hope that as you listen to the message from this past Sunday, that your heart is encouraged and you find yourself being drawn to Jesus wherever you're tuning in from. We are so grateful that you've joined us and pray that you'll be blessed as you listen to this week's message. Hey friends, last week we began a series looking at the difficult words of Jesus. And Pastor Cody gave a preview of some of those phrases that have been credited to Jesus of Nazareth that in the moment would have likely caused some people to scratch their heads. And many of those still cause us to wonder just what is Jesus getting at and what are we supposed to do with these challenges that he lays before us. Things like sell everything that you have or hate your father and mother or become a slave to all. What are we supposed to do with these sayings? And before we get to the place where we can apply them, it's helpful to answer why these passages matter so much to us. Like why do we even bother wrestling with the difficult words of Jesus? And I mean, there's a lot of reasons why we might want to wrestle with them, but perhaps the greatest is that we recognize that Jesus Christ is the central figure in this story that we believe in as Christians. We've come to the Bible because of Jesus. We come to these scriptures because of the person of Jesus. We've been grafted into this rich Jewish heritage of the scriptures, but we're late to the game. We're only here because of Jesus. And it's because we see him as more than just a good teacher. We understand Jesus to be the word of God. If you want to believe in an inerrant and infallible word of God, you need to believe that that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the inerrant and infallible word of God. So what Jesus says matters, perhaps more than anything else we find within the pages of Scripture. His, his words carry the most weight for us as Jesus followers. So if you want to understand the Bible, you have to read it through the lens of Jesus. There's a scene in Matthew 17 that helps emphasize this idea. Matthew 17 opens with this phrase. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. He was transformed. He was changed. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. And then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now this picture at first is like, what's going on here? There's Jesus is being transformed or changed. Transfigured is the word that gets used there. His face shines like the sun. All of a sudden, standing with him as he's glowing and emanating all of this light are Moses and Elijah. And then this voice comes to heaven in response to Peter's um, suggestion that they build basically three tents or three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. This voice almost comes as a bit of a correction saying, no, 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 no. It's not Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. It's Jesus. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Sounds very much like the baptism language that we heard when Jesus was baptized. But he says, listen to him. Well, Moses and Elijah, they are the, 
the quintessential personification of the law and the prophets. Moses, the one who God gave the law to. Elijah, one of the most prominent prophets of Israel. All of the law and prophets are wrapped up in these two people. And Peter, who wants to make these three tents of worship, he wants to make them all equal. He wants to say that the law and the prophets and Jesus, that these are who we need to be listening to, the teachings of Jesus. And God answers from on high. He says, listen to my son. This one trumps them all. Filter all that you know about the law and the prophets through what you hear in Jesus. Because the law says that we should stone a woman who's caught in adultery. And when that woman is brought before Jesus, he says, hey, he who is without sin, let them cast the first stone. Listen to him. Elijah called down fire from heaven to destroy the prophets of Baal. But Jesus tells us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Listen to him. Our faith is based on Jesus. Our understanding of who God is is founded in this person and teaching of Jesus, which is why we wrestle with these difficult words. It's why we look at everything in scripture through the lens of Jesus. Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 3 say, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets in many times in many various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful world. word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So if you want to understand God, you need to get to know Jesus. If you want to know what God has to say, you need to look at the words of Jesus. You need to wrestle with the difficult words of Jesus. So this is why we're focusing on these challenging phrases over the next number of weeks. And this morning, we're looking at Jesus and the rich young ruler, where Jesus invites a young man to participate in the kingdom by going and selling everything he has. Sell everything you have. What do we do with these difficult words of Jesus? Let's dig into Mark chapter 10. We're picking up at verse 17. We read these words. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud and honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So far for now. Now, this story is recorded in two of the other Gospels, in Matthew and Luke, though with some slight differences. So it's clear that more than one Gospel writer thought this moment in the ministry of Jesus was worth recording. 
But why? What are we meant to do with this? Cody mentioned two things are really important to remember when studying scripture and especially the words of Jesus. And number one is context matters. This chapter opens with a confrontation with the religious leaders who were trying to trip Jesus up on matters of the law. And in the moment right before this episode, people were bringing their children to Jesus to have him bless them. And he declared that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. He made the declaration just two verses before we meet this rich young ruler. It says, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So Mark is laying some groundwork, talking about how it's difficult to enter the kingdom of God, that it's not really about keeping the law perfectly, that there's some other understanding that we need to have, some other key to grasping this kingdom of God. And that's where we jumped in. Jesus has started on his way after blessing those little children and a man runs up to him and falls on his knees. And you can kind of ignore the title which is likely above this section where it says rich young ruler because Mark actually says nothing about this man's age. We, we all know almost nothing about him based on this passage other than he had great wealth. So was he young? Did he recently receive a great inheritance? Is that why he's thinking about his own mortality? Did he just lose his parents? Most young people I know aren't thinking about eternal life. They're, you know, they, they think they're invincible. Is this guy a little older? Has he built up some wealth on his own? Is he thinking about the meaning of all this accumulated wealth? We get the young part from Matthew's brief description of him as a young man, but how we picture this individual will likely influence how much we identify with him. Because when I hear rich young ruler, I don't think of myself. When I think of rich young person, I don't even think of myself. Like I think of Mr. Beast, you know, that that 24-year-old YouTuber who has more money than I can imagine. Or Justin Bieber or one of the Kardashians, right? Like when I think of rich, I don't think of myself. I think of those people who have more money than they could spend in a single lifetime. That's rich. I'm not rich. I'm actually not all that young either, but, but that's a matter of perspective, isn't it? Like how young I am or how young I feel might differ from somebody who's in their 80s. How rich I am or how rich I feel might differ from somebody who doesn't live in the middle of Canada. It's a matter of perspective. And when I think of those things, I don't usually put myself in those shoes. And, and what's that about? Well, what is that thing that we do where we either identify with or distance ourselves from these characters? Where we don't necessarily see ourselves in the rich young ruler. Like, I, I often see myself as the like one that Jesus comes to and invites to follow him. Or, or the one who Jesus heals and cares for. Not the ones that he has harsh words for. Like, I more readily see myself in the disciples as they're trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. Definitely more so than the religious leaders who get bent out of shape with Jesus when he's breaking all the rules. But in actuality, I'm probably more like those who are part of the religious institution in Jesus' day than I am like the fishermen who were mending nets on the beach after a hard night's work. It's curious, isn't it? The way that we sort of put ourselves into the story at places where we feel more comfortable being part of the story. I wonder what it would take for us to be somebody who would run up to Jesus and fall at his feet. What, what sort of question might we ask? And what might Jesus respond with to this cry of our heart? Context matters. And one of the things that influences our reading of scripture is the bias that we bring to it. We're either identifying or distancing ourselves from certain parts of the story. So like, do you see yourself in this young man? 
because whether I do or don't will impact how I read this story and how I apply it to my life. Because I've read in the past this passage and I've seen someone who is just looking for a pat on the back, like looking for that affirmation that they've been blessed because of their obedience, that that's why the wealth had come to them, that, that he was looking for Jesus to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Yes, you've been keeping all these laws since you were a boy. I'm gonna put you in charge of much in my kingdom. You know, here's your golden ticket. I mean, depending on how you read it, you could see this as like a wealthy Ebenezer Scrooge type dude, right? Like maybe he's been haunted by some ghosts and he's, but he's still concerned with his own skin, right? It's his own benefit. How, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He even uses like financial and passive language there. Like, like I want to inherit eternal life. What must I do in order to inherit it? How is this going to be passed to me? Now, I've also sometimes read this as someone who's been like looking to like, to like be get to get their foot in the door because of all of the things that they've kept themselves from that somehow they're going to earn God's favor by having been obedient to the law. He's kept himself pure, no murder, no adultery, no stealing. He's been a good boy. So what's to stop him from getting into God's good place? Well, Jesus answers the the question with a question as we're going to see in a couple of seconds. And he starts listing off these commandments. But do you notice the subtle change in even the way Jesus responds with the list of commandments? He, he throws one in there that's not part of the top 10. He says, you shall not defraud. That, that's not in the top 10, is it? It's covet. At least that's the way I've always understood it. Jesus says you can't covet. Don't covet your neighbor's wife or donkey. Or, like You shouldn't be jealous of or wanting. He, but Jesus here says defraud. Not covet, but to cheat or defraud somebody. Interesting. Covet is different than defraud, but it touches up the same heart motivation. It's looking after oneself at the expense of others. It's selfishness, it's greed, it's those things that stir up in each one of our hearts. But the rich young ruler, he just like glosses right over all of those things. You know the commandments, right? Yeah, I know all the commandments. I've kept them since I was a boy. But Jesus doubles down on him and especially on that issue. It says that he looked at him in love. It's one of the only times in Mark's gospel that Jesus looked at someone and says that he loved them. And the original language there, like the looking on him, it implies some intensity. It's like he looked hard at him. He looked him dead in the eyes and loved him, staring deep into this young man's eyes. And he says, here's the thing you lack. Jesus looks him right in the eyes. I love the way the message puts it. It says, Jesus looked him hard in the eye and loved him. And he said, there's one thing left. Go sell whatever you own and give it to the poor. All your wealth will then be heavenly wealth. And then come and follow me. Can, can you imagine? Can you imagine staring into the eyes of Jesus and hearing those words? How would you react? You're, you're on your knees before Jesus and he says, just let it all go. Sell whatever you own. Give it to the poor. Then come follow me. Is this the answer that young man was looking for? Like his initial question might have been a little naive. But this week as I read this passage, I, I saw this young man as someone who had legitimately come to Jesus with a desperate cry. Whether it was emptiness in his heart, whether it was fear, there was something that caused him to run to Jesus' feet and to fall on his knees and say, what do I need to do? What I've been doing isn't working. What do I need to do? And Jesus looks him right in the eye and he gives him the path to righteousness. 
And it isn't about him keeping himself from certain things. It's not just about following the law, but it's about giving himself to other things. It's not just about, you know, not doing those things that are bad, but it's about investing himself, his time, his talent, his, most poignantly in this story anyway, his money in the work of the kingdom. But once he heard the cost, like what Cody talked about last week, it says he went away sad. Now notice the story doesn't follow up with him. It doesn't say that he didn't actually go off and sell his stuff. It doesn't show him, you know, returning a few months later, having, you know, divested his worldly fortune and exchanged for treasures in heaven. He very may well have done that. But in the moment, he sees the cost is too high. He's, he's saddened. He's like, he's downtrodden because he's like, oh, is this what it really costs to follow Jesus? He was supposed to sell everything and give it to the poor. These are hard words. They're difficult words of Jesus. Jesus says, like, it's really hard. And then another really weird phrase, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Well, that's basically impossible, which is what the disciples say. Well, who's going to be saved then? Jesus says, don't worry about it. It's impossible for you on your own, but with God, all things are possible. Now, remember, like, point number two of uh, Cody's message last week, Jesus, like, context matters, but Jesus was also a Jewish rabbi. Here's somebody who came to him with, a question. Cody talked about hyperbole, exaggerating to create a desired effect. He, he's, he's not saying a camel's literally going to pass through an eye of a needle. He's saying that this is impossible. This is how hard it is. Rabbis in Jesus' day, and I understand that the tradition still remains pretty strong today, would often respond to a question with another question. There would be hyperbole. There would be a back and forth, a, an interchange to, to discuss and to, to dig out what was really going on, to get to the heart of the matter. And this young man runs up, falls on his knees before Jesus as if he's not going to be denied an audience with this rabbi. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds as a good rabbi would with another question. What are you doing calling me good? Only God alone is good. Jesus stops this young man in his tracks, forces him to think about what he's asking, reminding him that God is good and that this conversation they're about to have is something sacred. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. But then he goes right into listing the commandments. And that's another thing that rabbis would often do. Jesus is famous for this. By taking like, well, you've heard it said, or you know the commandments. Asking them to recall, what did you learn? What do you already understand? How do you read it? How do you see it? And then he takes that scripture and he applies it to this specific moment, to this current situation. And he often would add or shift the emphasis to create a richer interpretation. Like over and over through the scriptures, you hear Jesus say things like, you have heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard this, but I tell you this is the way things are. Don't murder. You've heard it said, do not murder. Well, I tell you that if you have anger in your heart, you've already committed murder. You've heard it said, like, thou shalt not commit adultery, but... I say, if you've lusted after someone in your heart, you've already done it. You've heard it said, eye for an eye, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And in this instance, Jesus is taking the scriptures and he's molding them to speak to that specific moment. He substitutes the word covet for defraud to get at the motivation of the man's heart. Maybe he had an idea of how this man had come to his great wealth. Maybe he was looking at this, this man's wealth and maybe the guy had been a little dishonest in his business dealings. Or 
maybe it's just a recognition that by amassing all of this wealth, he wasn't sharing what he had. And in that way, he was cheating others out of the blessing. If you, if you have a bunch of stuff, even if you've got it honestly, you defraud your neighbor if you don't share with them. This man doesn't have a problem with nine out of the Ten Commandments, but he's bumped up against it with this one because he has great wealth. And he doesn't seem all that keen to share it. Well, Jesus is saying, this is not the way of the kingdom. If you want to follow me, if you want to walk with me, go let that stuff go. Don't hang on to it so tightly. Sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you'll store up treasure in heaven. The way of the kingdom is abundance for all. It's not just that a few would have a lot. Father Ambrose of Milan, one of the early church fathers, at around AD 380 said, You are not making a gift of your possession to a poor person. You are handing over to him what is his. In other words, in the, in the economy of the kingdom, we're all meant to have enough. That we're all meant to be able to not only survive, but to thrive. And it doesn't do any good for, for certain people in the kingdom to hoard all of the wealth and not share with others. This is what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. If, if our needs are being looked after, we're also looking to meet the needs of others. If we have two coats and our neighbor doesn't have one, we should be motivated to share, to give one of our coats. We owe that person our extra coat. In one of my Lenten devotionals, The Unvarnished Jesus, Brian Zond has this to say about how we might apply the challenge to the rich young ruler. He says, the truth is that most of us, for most of us, economic self-interest is the single greatest obstacle to full participation in the kingdom of God. Economic self-interest, looking after ourselves, making sure that we have enough, that is the single greatest obstacle to full participation in the kingdom of God. He continues, we cannot love our neighbor as ourself without being willing to share our wealth. I love that. We cannot love our neighbor as ourself without being willing to share the wealth. So how do we react? How, do we walk away sad like the rich young ruler when we're challenged with how we view our wealth, with how we view uh, something like this to go sell everything you have? Are we called to do the same thing? What do we do with these difficult words of Jesus? Because you could ask that question. Is he calling you to do the same thing? To go and sell everything you own? To give it to the poor and follow him? Is Jesus setting down a principle here for all followers? Is this for all time for each and every one of us? That if we really want to follow Jesus, we'll sell everything we own, give it to the poor, and then follow him? Should we all be taking a vow of poverty? Should we sell everything we own? Well, that's, it's doubtful that that's what Jesus is getting at. But, can we excuse this as merely a directive to one man at a specific time in history? Do we distance ourselves from this character and say, well, that's not me. I'm nothing like that dude. That's also doubtful. I don't know that we can just be either or. It was just for this one individual or it's for all of us. But some of the application is going to hinge on how closely we identify with this young man. Do we see ourselves in the one who came running to the feet of Jesus, begging to know the secret of eternal life? Do we come with the same desperation, but also with the same baggage? Do we have similar issues with hoarding our wealth or defrauding others? Maybe. Do we put our trust in our bank balance and the things that we own? Maybe. Where do we put our trust? 
Could we give it all up if we were asked to? What if Jesus asked us to walk away from it all and invest in his kingdom? Could we do it? What do we do with the possessions that we have? Do we see them as ours and ours alone? Or do we see them as things to be shared with others? How do we see the money in our bank accounts? Is it something that's rightfully earned and it's up to my discretion how I spend it and on whom I choose to spend it? Or, or do we see it as something that's to be shared and invested in things that matter? H how do we look after our finances? Who do we look after with our finances? Is it only spent on ourselves? Or do we look to meet the needs of others? I I'm not sure that Jesus was laying down a prescription for each and every follower for here to, from here to eternity to take a vow of poverty. But there's no other earthly subject that Jesus talks about more. Aside from talking about his kingdom, there's nothing he talks about more than money and our relationship with it. He uses rich people as foils in many of his parables. And spoiler alert, they aren't the ones who end up the most blessed. It's those who suffer in life, the poor, the, the ones who have been defrauded or taken advantage of. They're the ones who end up reaping the rewards, who are shown mercy, who are, who are given reward at the end of days. Which is why Jesus challenged this young man and, and so many of his followers not to put their trust in money, not to serve mammon, not to, not to just go after accumulating wealth, but rather to live generously with open hands and open hearts, to see the needs around them and to help rather than to hoard it for themselves. The early church got this. They understood what it was to share their resources. One of the best pictures of the, the early church is found in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, we might not be being asked to sell everything that we possess, but we're called to have a similar attitude as the early church to the possessions and finances that we hold, to hold them with open hands, to, to be willing to share. This is what the kingdom is about. Following Jesus should cost us something. Like imagine if Jesus walked into your living room right now and, and you were there sitting at his feet asking for direction in your life. What must I do to enter the kingdom? What, what box do I need to check off? What, what needs to change in my life for me to follow in your footsteps? What might he challenge you with? And when it comes to the issue of finances or with your money, your possessions, what might Jesus say to you? Do you need to be more generous? Do you need to trust God to provide for you? Because following Jesus should cost us something. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, puts it really plainly. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid that the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusement, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say that they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. In other words, there should be areas that we can't go out and 
uh, engage in or things that we would want to spend our time and money on that we're maybe not able to do because we're busy helping meet the needs of other people. That instead of just looking at ourselves and how we could spend our money on ourselves, we look at how we might help meet the needs of others. And there are multitudes of ways that we can do this, whether it means going through your closet or your garage and realizing the excess that you possess and giving some of it away. Maybe it looks like, you know, how much time or money you spend on your own comfort and entertainment and choosing to scale that back a little bit in order to give to an organization that helps newcomers or the poor. Maybe you take some time each week to volunteer to serve others, you know, whether that's at our Tuesday night kids club or another organization in the neighborhood that serves others, that you, you find ways to look after the needs of others and live generously. What do we do with the difficult words of Jesus? We can be tempted to distance ourselves and say, well, I'm nothing like that guy. Or we can look at how there are ways that we resonate with that challenge of Jesus. Where, where we go like, oh, there, there is some stuff in my heart that I'm hanging on to a little too tightly. Or maybe I'm not trusting in a way that I should be. All through this series, we're going to be encouraging you to wrestle with the difficult words of Jesus. And to think about what Jesus is asking of you as you follow him. So the question for us today is, what do you hear when Jesus says, sell everything you have and then come follow me? Let's pray. Jesus, we want to walk closely with you. We, we want to see the world through your eyes and to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So would you, would you help us to walk in your ways? Help us to view our possessions as things that are to be shared freely. Help us to realize that we have so much that we could bless others with. Would you help us to live generously? Help us to follow you, to live in your kingdom ways. For we ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us for Church at Home. We, we pray that as you continue to wrestle with the difficult words of Jesus throughout this week and in your own quiet time, that you would hear very clearly the Spirit dropping things in your heart of what it means for you to be faithful, especially in the area of your finances. If you want a sneak peek at what next week is going to hold, we're going to be looking at let the dead bury their own dead. What does that even mean? We'll get into it next week. Would you join us as we continue to listen to what the Spirit might say to us through the difficult words of Jesus? And until we see you again, may the beauty of God be reflected in your eyes, the love of God be reflected in your hands, the wisdom of God be reflected in your words, and the knowledge of God flow from your heart that all might see and seeing believe. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Peace to you.